Hi, and welcome to the African American Hour. I'm Byron Buckner, bringing you readings from the following publications. Forbes Magazine, Rolling Stone Magazine, and Essence Magazine. We're going to start this week's readings off with an obituary from the New York Times and its nytimes.com website. The title of the obituary is Bernard Shaw, CNN's lead anchor for 20 years, dies at 82. He covered the Gulf War, anchored convention coverage, and asked a revealing question of Governor Michael Dukakis during a presidential debate in 1988. The story was written by Richard Sandemir and was originally published September 8, 2022. Bernard Shaw, CNN's lead primetime anchor for 20 years, who was also known for his steely coverage from Tiananmen Square in Beijing during the Chinese government's crackdown on protesters in 1989, and from Baghdad at the start of the Persian Gulf War two years later, died on Wednesday. He was 82. The death at a Washington hospital was confirmed in a statement by Chris Licht, CNN's chairman and chief executive. The cause was pneumonia. When the Gulf War began in January 1991, Mr. Shaw was watching from the balcony of his room at the Al Rashid Hotel as airstrikes and anti-aircraft fire filled the air in Iraq's capital city. Whoa, the skies over Baghdad have been illuminated, he said. We're seeing flashes going off all over the sky. Sam Feist, CNN's Washington bureau chief, said in a phone interview, he was really the world's eyes to history. Two years earlier, when he was anchoring CNN's coverage from Tiananmen Square, he informed viewers that the Chinese government was about to cut off live transmission of the network's coverage before signing off. Known for a steadying influence at the anchor desk, and from the field, Mr. Shaw had worked at CBS News and ABC News before he left the comfort of broadcast news to take a career gamble by joining Ted Turner's fledgling cable news network in 1980. He was one of the first black anchors of a network evening news program following Max Robinson, who became a co-anchor of ABC News World News Tonight in 1978. Wolf Blitzer, a CNN anchor, Recall that Mr. Shaw, who worked with his reporting colleagues Peter Arnett and John Holloman, remained in Baghdad for several days despite the danger of the assignment. When he came back, I told him how nervous we were and that he was risking his life for all of us, Mr. Blitzer said, and he said it was a huge news story, so we stayed. Lisa Napoli, the author of Up All Night, Ted Turner, CNN, and the Birth of 24-Hour News, wrote in an email that when CNN started, Shaw defined CNN to a tiny audience, but he showed the networks that the concept of an all-news channel was a force. One of Mr. Shaw's most dramatic and controversial moments at CNN came when he moderated a presidential debate in 1988 between Governor Michael Dukakis of Massachusetts and Vice President George H.W. Bush. Mr. Shaw began the debate on the issue of capital punishment, asking a blunt hypothetical question involving Mr. Dukakis's wife. Governor, if Kitty Dukakis was raped and murdered, would you favor an irrevocable death penalty for the killer? No, I don't, Bernard, Mr. Dukakis asked dispassionately, without referring to his wife, but focused on his position on the issue. And I think you know that I've opposed the death penalty during all my life. The question angered many Democrats as tasteless. 
Mrs. Dukakis herself called it outrageous, and some observers said the governor's impassive response cost him at the polls. But Mr. Shaw told the Washington Post soon afterward that he had posed it to Mr. Dukakis as a stethoscope to find out what he was feeling on the issue. Bush, he said, had been beating Dukakis severely about the head and shoulders, charging he was soft on crime. Bernard Shaw was born on May 22, 1940, in Chicago. His father, Edgar, was a railroad worker and house painter, and his mother, Camilla Murphy Shaw, was a housekeeper. Bernard had an early fascination with the news business. His father brought home four newspapers a day. He idolized the CBS News correspondent, Edward R. Murrow, and as a teenager, he found his way into the 1956 Democratic National Convention in Chicago. When I looked up at the anchor booths, he told Time magazine, I knew I was looking at the altar. In 1961, while he was serving a four-year stint in the Marines, he was stationed in Hawaii and learned that Walter Cronkite, the CBS News broadcaster, was working on a story in Honolulu. He left messages for Mr. Cronkite that led to a meeting in the hotel lobby. Mr. Shaw told the New York Times in 1988 that Mr. Cronkite said to him, the key thing is to read. Read, he added. We've been friends ever since. After graduating from the University of Illinois, Chicago, with a bachelor's degree in history in 1966, Mr. Shaw worked for local radio and television stations in Chicago until 1971 when CBS News hired him as a political reporter. His assignments included the Watergate scandal. He moved to ABC News in 1977 and became its Latin American correspondent covering the mass murder and suicide of the Jonestown cult in Guyana. At CNN, Mr. Shaw became one of the most prominent journalists hired to fulfill Mr. Turner's daunting challenge, to quickly establish the credibility of a 24-hour startup in a news business that was then known primarily for CBS, NBC, and ABC's half-hour evening news programs. In a tribute to Mr. Shaw when he retired in 2001, Judy Woodruff, who anchored the Inside Politics program on CNN with him and is now a news anchor with PBS, said he had a manner and a voice that makes every word believable. The coolest demeanor in the hottest situations, the cut-to-the-quick interviewing style, and his core powerful combination of journalistic integrity and pure instinct. His judiciousness came into play in the aftermath of the attempted assassination of President Ronald Reagan in 1981, when CBS and ABC erroneously reported the death of James Brady, Mr. Reagan's press secretary who had been wounded in the shooting. Mr. Shaw refused to make a similar announcement because the information that CNN had received was secondhand. Mr. Brady survived the shooting and died in 2014. Mr. Shaw was in Beijing in 1989 covering the anti-government protest in Tiananmen Square when martial law was declared in parts of the city, leaving the CNN contingent 58 minutes before the network would be taken off the air. And at the final moment before the plug was pulled, we were able, after much browbeating and negotiating back and forth with the Chinese, to give Bernie a chance to sign off and close this whole operation down. Mike Chinoy, the Beijing bureau chief at the time, said in the retirement tribute to Mr. Shaw. In signing off, Mr. Shaw told viewers, In my 26 years in this business, I have never seen anything like this. For all the hard-working men and women of CNN, goodbye from Beijing. 
Until his retirement, Mr. Shaw continued to anchor from Washington and from locations of major news stories like Oklahoma City, where he spent two weeks in 1995 after the terrorist bombing of the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building there that killed 168 people. He is survived by his wife, Linda Alston Shaw, a daughter, Anil, and a son, Amar. In 2014, when he was interviewed by National Public Radio, Mr. Shaw said that in covering major stories, he strove to control his emotions as he did in Baghdad. People are depending on you for accuracy, dispassionate descriptions of what's happening, he said, and it would be a disservice to the consumers of news, be they readers, listeners, or viewers, for me to become emotional and get carried away. There are several photographs that go along with this story. The first shows Mr. Shaw sitting at the anchor desk in the CNN news studios. The caption reads, the CNN anchor Bernard Shaw on the set in 2000. The next photograph shows Mr. Shaw wearing glasses and a trench coat in China. The caption reads, Mr. Shaw reporting from Tiananmen Square in Beijing during anti-government protest in 1989. And the final photograph shows an older Mr. Shaw standing in a hallway in the CNN studios. The caption reads, Mr. Shaw in 2001 at CNN's Washington Bureau. He retired that year. That was a reading of the obituary. Bernard Shaw, CNN's lead anchor for 20 years, dies at 82. It appeared at the nytimes.com website. It was written by Richard Sandemir and was originally published September 8th, 2022. Next on today's African American Hour is a reading from Essence Magazine and its September-October 2022 edition. The title of the article is Million Dollar Club. Black women founders share tales of securing $1 million in funding for their businesses. It was written by Jasmine Broly. Raising $1 million as a business owner is remarkable. For black women, it has long been nearly impossible. According to Fortune, just 34 black female founders were able to pull in $1 million in venture capital for their businesses in 2018. In 2020, that number nearly tripled, with 93 black women stating that they had secured $1 million in investor backing for their business. Even so, Project Diane, which tracks the experiences of black and Latina women founders, reported that this demographic received just 0.64% of total venture capital dollars between 2018 and 2019, topping out at $3.1 million, with 0.27% going to black women and 0.37% going to women identifying as Latina. This paints a poor picture when measured against the already small 2.7% of venture capital that was allocated to female-only founding teams just three years ago. Ironically, black women represent the nation's fastest-growing group of entrepreneurs, with 17% either running or in the early stages of launching new companies, compared with 10% of white women and 15% of white men. However, due to a social justice outcry that prompted powerful venture capitalists to pay attention to diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives, the investment tide is turning. Savitri Wilson, capital S-E-V-E-T-R-I, is evidence of this. 
the Louisiana-bred founder and CEO of the tech startup Resilia, R-E-S-I-L-I-A, not only reached the $1 million investment mark, but became the first black woman in Louisiana to raise more than $2 million. The impressive feat came on the heels of the launch of her first company communications firm, Solid Ground Innovations. While most would think she'd be exhilarated by her progressive accomplishments, she said they left her exhausted. Fundraising is tiring, Wilson admits. About five years ago, when I started, barely any of us black women founders were able to raise over a million dollars. Though she has since raised an additional $8 million in Series A funding, she notes that on average, black women have been able to raise only $37,000 for their companies. But she acknowledges that while the overall amount of the venture capital funding for blacks is still dismal, there's a glimmer of hope. What I do feel is happening to our benefit is that you're seeing more black women raise the Series A and Series B than you've seen before, she says. But there's still so much work to be done. Denise Whitworth agrees. After the working mom launched her company in 2016 while still employed full-time at her job as the director of national sales for venturing and emerging brands at the Coca-Cola company, she set out to raise funding for a business she believed in but kept getting turned down. The founder and CEO of the clean snack brand Partake Foods was rejected by 86 investors before she secured funding for her company three years later. She finally got a yes in 2019 from Jay-Z when the rapper and mogul's Marcy Venture Partners led a $1 million investment in Partake. I do think there have been some positive developments, but I don't feel like I've seen as many changes in the critical earliest stages of investment, Woodward says. For a business to get to that first $1 million in sales is such a challenging thing. And without friends and family and a network of investors, too often black women don't get the capital to even get the business off the ground. To her point, there aren't many venture capital institutions focused on investing in early stage black businesses, but they do exist. Collab Capital, capital C-O-L-L-A-B, for instance, closed a $50 million fund to funnel dollars exclusively into Black-funded enterprises in order to help counteract the unique fundraising challenges faced by Black business owners as compared to other groups. To further narrow the gap, Wilson asserts that early founders should focus on sharpening their pitch before facing investor prospects. Founders like us need to get to know the game better, Wilson explains. We have to understand what the pitch decks need to look like to interest investors, because otherwise we'll get wheeled out of the building. She also suggests road testing pitches with other founders who can offer feedback so that by the time you're in front of an investor, you will be extremely prepared. Other founders should be your first pitch, she says. Then you should have a list of idea investors that you want and pitch from the least ideal to the most ideal. Olamide Olowe, capital O-L-A-M-I-D-E, capital O-L-O-W-E, founder and CEO of inclusive skincare brand Topicals, intimately understands the whirlwind process of fundraising for a startup. Topicals e-launched in August 2020 in Nordstrom's and was able to gain $2.6 million from investors that included former Netflix CMO Bozama St. John and Insecure stars Issa Rae and Yvonne Origi. 
Although it's important to note the significance of the monetary accomplishment, Olaway reflects that black women founders in the fundraising phase should also prioritize refining their business pitches and concepts. We have to remember to recalibrate, she says. I think so many people get really stuck on their concept, their idea, exactly what they want to do. But I think fundraising is a really interesting microcosm of the experience you'll see any other time you're doing anything in business. She likens the process to one of her favorite quotes from Mike Tyson. Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. Fundraising is kind of like your first example of that, she explains. You think you've pressure tested your concept. You've got through this business idea and you're going to go to market. You know who you're going to bring on the team. And then an investor in 30 minutes can poke a hole through all the assumptions that you had. At that point, recalibration becomes really important because you want to take in constructive information to be better able to position your business. On the other hand, it's also important to know when to stand your ground. You have to know when to do one thing versus the other. She's experienced this scenario firsthand. At just 23 years old, she was the youngest black woman ever to raise more than $2 million in funding, an incredible feat considering that many potential investors insisted the brand's ethos wouldn't catch on. People told me that topicals shouldn't exist, says Oloe. They said that chronic skin care with a fun brand experience product didn't work, or it was too juvenile, or showing people with visible skin conditions would scare people away. But obviously, we proved that wrong. And so I think there are times when you need to recalibrate and take information that you've been given by investors to help build a stronger, cleaner pitch. And then there are other times when you actually just know that the investor isn't the right one for you and you need to stand your ground based on what you truly believe. Perhaps the most important takeaway for black women founders is not to allow rejection from one investor to turn you aside because for true believers such as Aloe, Wilson and Woodward have shown the next million dollar infusion of capital may be just one more pitch away. That was a reading of the article Million Dollar Club. That appeared in the September-October 2022 edition of Essence Magazine. It was written by Jasmine Broly. Next up on today's African American Hour is a story from Rolling Stone magazine. The title is Mysterious Death of an OJ. It was written by Brianna Ehrlich and was published in the August edition of Rolling Stone magazine. This story begins in 1982 with less than half a man a pile of bones discovered under a layer of February snow, his broken skull smiling up at an adolescent worker behind his family's factory. The bones are far from home, discarded in small-town Twinsburg, Ohio, which got its name because it was founded by twins who married sisters, who died the same day and were buried in the same grave. Broken and nameless, the man became a mystery that would haunt the town for decades, While industries waxed and waned and the teen who found him grew old enough to see his family's business shut down and become a ruin, for almost 40 years, he was unburied, passed down from detective to detective, a puzzle to solve as new crime-solving technologies came on the scene promising resolutions to cold cases. 
For four decades, this man remained a question mark until his identity was revealed by a young detective and a cousin whose family started dabbling in genealogy. His bones no longer a challenge for rookie cops. This man, a musician, father, business owner, and brother, was finally returned to his family, which had wondered for decades why he never came home. Now there's a chance his story can finally be told. Frankie Robinson never believed that his father would willingly leave him even after his dad vanished from his East Cleveland apartment in the late 70s when he was five. Frankie Little Jr. loved his namesake too much. My dad was a good person, Robinson says of his old man. He was like any man in the music industry. My mom said that was his downfall. But I know he loved me for sure. Little, a 36-year-old guitarist and songwriter, was living with his girlfriend, Rochella Womack. He did odd jobs to make ends meet but his true passion was the guitar. Known to friends by his stage name, Brother Rabbit, Frankie had been a member of the OJs when they were just starting out in the early 60s and co-wrote a handful of songs with lead singer Eddie Levert, including Oh, How You Hurt Me, 1964, and Pretty Words, 1966. These days, he played out around the city with his band Fresh Fire while filling his son's life with music. He bought the younger Frankie drums and serenaded him with rounds of Hush Little Baby, his Gibson, his most constant companion. The music ended, though, when Little didn't come home, and that day haunts Robinson 48. The way he remembers it, he was at the apartment with Womack when someone knocked at the door. Womack told the boy to hide in the bathroom, he says. I remember hearing the door open, and I thought it was my dad, Robinson says. He never found out who that person was, When he emerged, the man was gone. I've never seen my dad since that day. For her part, Womack, now 66, doesn't remember Robinson being there or what day it was specifically. All she recalls is that it was warm out and Little was in a huff because the neighbor across the street, whom he often worked with, hadn't paid him for their most recent job. She's not sure if Little left the apartment to confront the man or if he took a long soak in the bath, which he often did when he was stressed. I just know at a certain time of night, I was in bed and I jumped up all of a sudden like something had happened, she says. That was the night he disappeared and never came back. Jones just assumed his uncle had gone underground, maybe changed his name to something flashier. He fancied he heard Little's distinctive guitar playing on every record he put on the turntable, that same Curtis Mayfield groove that won him a spot in the OJs. Little's cousin, Margaret O'Sullivan, thought for decades that he would walk through her front door one day, just show up on her plush red carpet with some story or other. Her living room is crammed with family photos she wishes she could show him, his relatives growing up, having kids, and those kids achieving their dreams. Sadly, Sullivan was wrong. Robinson's intuition proved to be true. As it turned out, his father was murdered, a bag of bones found in 1982 in Twinsburg, roughly 25 miles from his home. But it wouldn't be until December 2021, after the case crossed the desk of Detective Eric Hendershot, capital H-E-N-D-E-R-S-H-O-T-T, that his remains would be identified. From there, friends, family, and authorities began piecing together the fragments of Little's legacy and how, exactly, the free-willing musician's bones ended up abandoned under a drift of snow. Jonathan Lawrence, the boy who found the bones, 
hasn't been to the site of his mother's old roofing material factory, Laurent Corporation, for 20 years. He hasn't had any reason to. The factory burned down in 1992. His mother died in 2008. And even though he technically still owns the land, it's basically just a swamp now, studded with fragrant skunk weed, charred ruins, and bad memories. In the spring of 2022, however, he's back. His wheels stick in the mud as he maneuvers his SUV through a narrow tunnel of trees to 3047 Cannon Road, which you wouldn't know was there if not for the weather-beaten sign. You can see why we could never get a pizza delivered, Lawrence quips, luring his oak leaves and squinting into the sun toward where he uncovered a mystery decades ago. Lawrence doesn't get out of the car when he reaches his destination, a swath of swampy grass surrounded by trees hemmed in by a line of tony condos. Instead, he points to a jumble of ruins and recalls what he says was a day back in the late 70s when he was around 16. He remembers standing on a platform in the mixing room at the back of the building, stirring up adhesive for roofing materials. He was looking out the window when he saw a car pull in, what cops now believe was a 1957 Ford station wagon, turn around and back up to the edge of the woods, where a black man in blue coveralls and a driving hat dumped a bag on the ground. I'm standing there going, damn it, I'm going to have to clean that up. Why didn't he just put it in the dumpster, Lawrence says. As the owner's son, the dirty work often fell to him. He didn't think much of it, though. People tossed so much trash back there that they left the dumpsters unlocked. This is where his memory fractures. Lawrence recalls going outside that day to deal with whatever the man left behind, but this actually happened later, in February 1982, according to the police report in the local paper. When pressed, he admits that he may have conflated his memories. Lawrence was poking around the trash one February day when the bag split and a skull rolled out. Being young and full of bluster, Lawrence wasn't rattled. Instead, he scooped the skull into a shovel and brought it in to scare the new secretary. See the kind of trash people leave behind, he joked. She freaks out, completely freaks out, and calls the police, he says. Then she tells me to take it and put it back where I found it. When the police arrived, they discovered the rest of the bones, which they thought might belong to eight-year-old Tiffany Papish, capital P-A-P-E-S-H, who disappeared in 1980. Or perhaps this was a gangland killing, as Twinsburg Police Chief Don Prang speculated to the Akron Beacon Journal. Lawrence claims bodies have been found back there in the past, before his time, and recalls police meeting informants in the shipping area after hours, his mother Dorothy serving them steaming cups of coffee. Lawrence doesn't seem too bothered by the memory. He's had his share of struggles over the years that have far eclipsed that gruesome discovery. But he does shake his head when he points out a white plastic cross festooned with a drooping fake wreath and an American flag, Frankie Little Jr.'s name is sharpied across the slats, already almost faded away by the elements. It's not in the right spot, he says, pointing to a tangle of wood several feet away where he says he saw the mystery man dump the bag. Blurred memories or not, Lawrence can still remember where Little's bones lay. Frankie Jr. was born in August 1943 in Cleveland to Frankie Little Sr. and Laverta Stone who were both entertainers at heart and jacks-of-all-trades for money. His mother died when he and his brothers Johnny were young. 
Johnny was Frankie's only full brother, but he had a few half-siblings and spent weekends hanging out with his twin cousins, Margaret and Rosie Little. His father knew they liked to play music and stuff like that, so his father bought him a guitar, says his cousin Margaret O'Sullivan, recalling how he was rarely without the instrument. He was never the type to go out and party. He never had a lot of friends. He was just into music. While Johnny admits that he himself was a bit of a bad kid, Frankie was studious. He didn't care nothing about sports, Johnny says. I used to beg him to play cards. He didn't want to do that. All he wanted to do was play his guitar, write, draw, paint. We lived near a large swimming pool, and he didn't care about going swimming, basketball. He just wanted to play his guitar. Frankie put together his first band, the Fairlanes, in the early 60s and even has sweaters made with the band name emblazoned across them. In the mid-60s, the young musician got his big break when the OJs held auditions for new members and he scored a spot on the guitar. His first songwriting credit with the band was for 1964's Oh How You Hurt Me. Frankie was a very passionate guy. He loved playing his instrument and we love the way he played because he played a little bit of the Curtis Mayfield style, said the O.J. singer Levert. By then, the band had been gigging for more than five years. The group formed under a different name in 1958 and officially became the O.J.'s in 1963 as a nod to Cleveland DJ Eddie O.J., a radio personality and the band's one-time manager. By the time Little joined, They'd scored their first hit, 1963's Lonely Drifter, but had yet to hook up with the Philly producers Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff, who propelled the band up the charts after groups signed to the Philadelphia International Records in the early 70s. The band continues to tour to this day, albeit without all the original members, and was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2005. They could dance. They looked great. And they always wore great stage outfits. They were the whole package, says Jason Hanley, vice president of education and fan engagement at the Hall of Fame, adding that they never forgot their roots. They were one of the biggest groups to come out of Cleveland. A lot of their music is feel-good music, which I think is why they continue to resonate with people year after year. Although a fan of the OJs, Hanley admits he hasn't heard of Little until recently. When it comes to the mid-60s, though, things get a little murky for Little's friends and family. That's when Little and the OJs went to California, when he married a woman named Precious P. Henderson on June 16, 1965, according to the U.S. Marriage Index. The two apparently had a daughter, but neither Johnny nor the rest of his family ever met Precious or the girl, both of whom have since died. Johnny only knows that eventually Frankie got homesick and returned to Cleveland around 1967. Johnny says the day Frankie got back, two members of the Armed Services Military Police rounded him up and took him straight to a federal building. From there, he was drafted into the Army, sent to basic training back in California, and shipped straight to Vietnam. He was hurt because when that happened, my father had passed, Johnny says. I think it really affected him to not be able to go to my father's funeral. Johnny doesn't recall exactly when his brother finally got home, but he does remember the horrific stories he brought back. The booby traps the North Vietnamese set for the invading Americans. The heads on spikes they erected to scare off Frankie and his fellow troops. He was a survivor, though, Johnny says. 
he could take a tree trunk off the street and carve it and shellac it and sell it. He made his own clothes. He was very talented. The brothers opened stores next to each other in the early 70s under the name Jay's Deli and Record Shop, not far from an area now known as Cleveland's second downtown. Today is crammed with medical buildings, but in those days, the neighborhood was a hotbed of black culture. It was largely curated by prominent black real estate developer Winston E. Willis, who opened venues like Scrumpy Dump Cinema and Winston's Place Fine Dining. There were also jazz clubs, movie theaters, both adult and child-friendly, and beauty shops. It was the inner-city Disneyland, says Willis's sister, Andra Willis Carrasco. Although no longer with the OJs, Little had no shortage of creative outlets, and the neighboring shops were a melting pot of music and collaboration. Frankie had a little sewing room where he'd make dashikis, his cousin O'Sullivan remembers, and he'd play his guitar. He was very talented. Jones recalls Little bringing touring bands through the shop to drum up business. He worked behind the counter at his dad's shop and flitted between the grocery and the record store when musicians filtered through. Meanwhile, Johnny kept the younger generation hopped up on sugar and candy and occupied with a menagerie of pinball machines. All the neighborhood kids came, he says. I had the shop painted a loud orange in the front and I had neon signs in both windows. The whole neighborhood calls me Jay. It was a blessing to watch the kids grow up. All the while, Little was playing music and falling in love. He took up with an artist named Diana Robinson in the early 70s and had a son, Frankie Robinson, in 1974. The couple never married and Little got together with Womack in 1973, Womack recalls. They were a musical couple and performed together often, Womack says, while Little also played with the Fresh Fire. He was so tough he could get on his knees and play the guitar with his teeth, she says. Womack was in her late teens at the time and lived with Little, 12 years her senior, as he moved between two homes. There was a big house not far from Frankie and Johnny's store with beads in the doorways, bright windows, and red and yellow lights, which always smelled like the jasmine incense Little made. And then another more modest spot in East Cleveland. Little would make her clothes, Womack recalls, and kept her laughing. He was funny, she says. He used to kill me trying to dance and I used to laugh at him because he'd be getting down. He was a fun dude. After five years of working side by side, Frankie and Johnny closed their shops and the brothers said goodbye for the last time in 1976, before Johnny moved to Florida. The next three years passed without incident, according to Womack, who continued to live with Frankie in East Cleveland as he played music and worked odd jobs. That is, until the day Womack woke up in bed with a premonition that something was wrong. I couldn't understand why he disappeared off the face of the earth. That was not like him, Womack says now. She says Frankie left everything behind the day he vanished, even his beloved Gibson. That hurt me for a long time because I really loved him, she says. That's all I knew. He was my guy. He protected me. I felt safe. Womack says she did report Little Missing as she was young and didn't know what to do. Johnny didn't have his social security number and couldn't file an official report. I think about him a lot, O'Sullivan says, because we didn't have no time to grow up. That's what I'm missing. When the OJs used to come to Cleveland to play, Frankie wasn't with them. We missed all these good times. The OJs are still around, but he's not. And that hurts. I don't even listen to them anymore. 
In the end, it was O'Sullivan who cracked the cold case, according to Detective Hendershot, but only after years of arduous work and dead ends. Less than two miles from Laurent Corporation, Hendershot sits in a long conference table at the Twinsburg Police Department, decades of files spread out before him. He's tall, broad, and hirsute, but his voice is young and careful. The fact that he wasn't alive in 1979 when Little went missing is extremely apparent. Little's case is far from the only murder in the town's books, but it was the only cold case. It's been bounced around to new detectives, Hendershot 35 explains. So back in 2018, I was brand new to the Bureau and I was given my shot with the case. He studies the papers in front of him, an Akron Beacon Journal article, a photo of a 2009 sketch that was supposed to be a replica of the then John Doe, an image of a clay 2017 model, and the only photo anyone has of Little, an old high school snap that looks nothing like either. In it, Little is handsome, if unsmiling, with close-cropped hair, dark, strong brows, and sleepy eyes. There's also a press release from 1982 from the office of the coroner in Akron, Ohio, which tells the macabre tale of how the then unidentified skull traveled all the way to the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C. to determine the cause of death. According to Lisa Kohler, the medical examiner for Summit County, since all they had were bones, they needed the expertise of an anthropologist. The anthropologist offered up a host of possibilities of what could have happened to the man, all horrible. He may have suffered blunt trauma, a shotgun blast, dismemberment, the latter almost a certainty given how his body was discovered. According to Hendershot, less than half of the body was found on Cannon Road, and those pieces have stayed until now at the Summit County Medical Examiner's Office in the evidence area. The other half is still lost, carried off perhaps by animals. When Hendershot finally got his turn with the case, there had already been a few efforts to identify the body. In 2009, they extracted DNA from the skull's teeth and uploaded it to the FBI's DNA database, CODIS, but no matches were found. In 2017, they partnered with the Ohio Bureau of Criminal Investigation to create the clay model, a photo of which was sent out to the public in hopes that someone would recognize the man. We'd get calls, but nothing seemed to go anywhere, Hendershot says. We really didn't have much to start with. Finally, in 2018, Hendershot heard that police were able to ID and arrest the Golden State Killer using forensic genealogy and a light bulb went off. In that case, authorities and genealogy experts were able to use DNA evidence from one of the killer's crime scenes to create a comprehensive DNA profile of the unknown man. They then uploaded that information to an open source database called GEDmatch, capital G-E-D-M-A-T-C-H, which lets users import raw DNA data and track down family members. When they got a hit on a distant relative, authorities and genealogy experts were able to study the suspect's family tree, finally IDing the serial killer, Joseph James D'Angelo, by obtaining a DNA sample from him and matching it to their profile. To solve his mystery, Hendershot partnered with the DNA Doe Project, a nonprofit that helps ID the dead. 
the Doe Project created a DNA profile, which it uploaded to GetMatch and another database called Family Tree DNA. From there, Hendershot was able to build out a family tree, which included several people named Little. After calling a few Littles across the country to no avail, Hendershot finally landed on O'Sullivan, whose son and his wife had used a genealogy site in the past. Hendershot called her late in 2021 and after a brief conversation discovered that she had a cousin, Frankie, who had been missing for decades. It's pretty crazy that all it took was one phone call to his cousin, Hendershot says. Margaret is really the one that solved everything. O'Sullivan introduced the cop to Johnny Little, Frankie's brother, and was able to provide a saliva sample and positively ID Frankie once and for all. It was hard to believe at first, Hendershot says. There were definitely doubts. I remember making the call to Margaret and coming back to the station, talking to the other detectives and telling them that I think we got an ID. And it was like that was it. That half was done. But now the investigation. We got an ID. Now we have to figure out what happened to him. While Hendershot was rifling through the branches of Little's family tree, Little's nephew, Sean Jones, was celebrating the holidays with his relatives in Georgia, the biggest get-together they'd had in years. That all fell apart when they found out finally what happened to Frankie. The whole family was confused and upset, especially Johnny. That was a total shock. We always wondered where he was, but we had no idea. These detectives, they didn't sweeten it up. They told us exactly what they found, Johnny says, referring to the condition of Frankie's body. Sure, the family was relieved. In a way, Frankie hadn't left them. He hadn't deliberately lost touch. But what had happened to him was almost too terrible to bear. Murdered, dismembered, tossed aside like trash. Even months later, sitting on the couch of her Cleveland home in her church best, a yellow and black striped dress and matching hat, O'Sullivan can't speak about Little without crying. Why would someone do him like that, she asked, her voice getting angry under the tears. He was a nice guy. He never bothered nobody. You hated Frankie that well to do something like that? It made me think you don't have a heart to do somebody like that, to cut somebody like that, like a chicken. That's the question that family and authorities are grappling with to this day because, by all accounts, Little was not the type of man to end up murdered, especially in such a gruesome way, Hendershot says. Little had no criminal record to speak of, and he's still stuck on how the man ended up in Twinsburg. While O'Sullivan says she heard Little was playing shows in the tiny town back in the 70s, both Hendershot and Bonnie Williams, president of the Twinsburg Historical Society, say there's never really been a music scene there. That means Little, who was living in East Cleveland at the time of his disappearance, was likely dumped, which adds another question to the list. If something is drug or crime related, usually someone would just kill someone and leave them there, Hendershot says. So we're going through different theories about why someone would go through all these steps to bring him here. Johnny wants the cops to look into a cousin of his who was involved with some shady characters, while Womack told Hendershot about that neighbor, the one Frankie was mad at when he went missing. She says her aunt, who lived down the block, never got a good feeling from the man. Womack can't recall his surname, but says she heard he may have murdered his wife or girlfriend a few years after Frankie vanished.
Plus, she told Hendershot, he was a black man in his 50s who drove a dark-colored station wagon, an eerily similar description to the man Lawrence says he saw back in 1979 dumping the bag containing Frankie's body. Now Hendershot is on the hunt for any proof that such a murder took place or in turn for the man who may have committed the crime. Was this the person who vanished little more than 40 years ago? Could we be this much closer to finding out why Little's life ended so violently and how his body came to be found in pieces in a distant town? Hendershot isn't sure, but he's hopeful. After all, a year ago, the public didn't even know Frankie's name. Frankie Robinson has an article about his father taped to his cell wall by his bed at Grafton Correctional Institution, where he's been since 2006 for manslaughter a bar fight gone wrong that he regrets to this day. There, Little can watch over him and Brett, a double doodle that he trains as part of a prison certification program. He thinks he and his dad look like twins, and he's not wrong. Robinson has that same strong brow as seen in Little's school photo. Talking about his father, Robinson brings up again and again that Little cared for him, that his life would have been different had he not disappeared. If my dad was here, I wouldn't be here right now, he laments. He loved me that much that he would have made sure I did the right thing. The father he only knew for a few short years is never far from Robinson's mind. I dream about him carrying me around, about Mockingbird. He says about the song his father would sing to him. That's super glue. It'll never come off my memory. Usually in dreams, I see myself smiling at dad. Just a little baby looking up at my dad. There are several photographs that go along with this story. The next is a black and white publicity photo of a singing group. They all have processed hair, are wearing ties, and are wearing double-breasted blazers. The subtitle reads, Frankie Little Jr. was part of the OJs in the 1960s. Though no photographs of him and the band survived, Little co-wrote, Oh, How You Hurt Me, and pretty words. The next image is a photograph of the front page of a newspaper. The headline on that newspaper says, Twinsburg Bones Taken to Smithsonian. The name of the newspaper is the News Bulletin. The caption to this picture reads, Local coverage in 1982 after the unidentified remains were sent to the Smithsonian Institution. It would take nearly 40 years and leaps forward in DNA technology for Little's identity to be discovered. That was the article, Mysterious Death of an OJ. It appeared in the August 2022 edition of Rolling Stone magazine and was written by Brianna Ehrlich. Next up on today's African American Hour is an article from Forbes magazine and it's June-July 2022 edition. The title is a league of their own. Tiger Woods and LeBron James are the first athletes to become billionaires while still active in their sport, paving the way for a new generation of player tycoons. This story was written by Matt Craig and Chase Peterson Withorn, capital W-I-T-H-O-R-N. He donned the green jacket of a Masters champion and 20 years since a teenage LeBron James still only in high school suited up for his first nationally televised basketball game. Triumph 
injury, scandal, failure, and triumph again have followed in various order for both. Through it all, each has remained at the economic pinnacle of his sport. Over their careers, the two legends have raked in a combined $2.9 billion, $1.7 billion for Woods, and $1.2 billion for James in salary, endorsements, and other income. This run of success has turned both champions into billionaires, a feat never previously achieved by any active athlete. Michael Jordan, the only other athlete billionaire, didn't hit 10 figures until after he retired, thanks to a well-timed investment in the NBA's Charlotte Hornets. Woods, 46, amassed his estimated $1 billion fortune primarily through enormous endorsement deals with brands like Nike, Gatorade, and Rolex. He has also assembled an impressive real estate portfolio and owns chunks of businesses, including a Jupiter, Florida restaurant called The Woods and an operator of upscale mini golf courses that has plans to expand nationwide. James, 37, has built his $1 billion net worth as one of the best paid and most entrepreneurial players in NBA history. He, too, has partnered with Nike, inking a lifetime sponsorship deal in 2015 and with brands such as AT&T, PepsiCo, and Beats by Dr. Dre. Then there's Spring Hill, James' TV and movie production outfit. Space Jam, What's My Name, Muhammad Ali. Last October, outside investors, including Fenway Sports Group and Epic Games, bought in at a $725 million valuation. James remains the biggest shareholder. They've been extremely skillful in taking parts of businesses and creating their own business in ways that athletes before them just weren't, says legendary sports agent Lee Steinberg, who was reportedly the inspiration for Tom Cruise's character in Jerry Maguire. Steinberg would know. He still remembers negotiating a deal that paid Atlanta Falcons quarterback Steve Bartkowski $600,000 over four years. Even adjusted for inflation, that's only about $800,000 annually, less than what dozens of NFL rookies made last year. What has changed? First and foremost, the value of live sports on television. In a streaming world, almost no other programming can still reliably generate a mass audience. In 2011, 51 of the year's top 100 telecasts were sporting events. Last year, the number was 95 out of 100. The dollar size of TV contracts has soared, taking player salaries with them. Jack Nicholas earned $6.7 million, less than $40 million in today's dollars over his four-decade playing career, which began professionally in 1961. That's less than a third of Wood's 27-year inflation-adjusted haul. Jordan made $94 million, $172 million today, in salary from his 16 seasons in the NBA. James has topped that in just the last five seasons. Generational stars like Woods and James supercharge ratings, too. In the early 2000s, according to former CBS president Neil Pilston, TV audiences would drop 30 to 50 percent when Woods was not in contention at a tournament. He is still a major draw, but less so these days. And James played in each of the 15 highest-rated NBA games of the past decade. 
In a sense, the sport built these super celebrities, but in another sense, they greatly contributed to the popularity of the sport, Steinberg says. That has helped the off-field bucks get much bigger, too. There's a long tradition spanning Babe Ruth to Arnold Palmer to Jordan of athletes getting paid to endorse brands. But now the endorsement potential stretches into the three commas thanks to the amplifying effect of modern media and technology. No one has yet cashed in more over their careers than Woods and James. Of Woods' $1.7 billion in career pre-tax earnings, only $120 million comes from actual golf winnings. James has earned some $385 million on the court and upward of $900 million off it, says veteran sports business consultant and Columbia lecturer Joe Favorito, capital F-A-V-O-R-I-T-O. No doubt Babe Ruth could have made more if he'd had a Twitter following. With none of these trends showing any sign of slowing, there's little doubt that the next crop of superstar players will make even more money faster than either Woods or James. There are two separate charts that go along with this article. The first is titled Billion Dollar Ballers. These six athletes have earned more than $1 billion apiece pre-tax in salary or winnings and endorsements over their careers. Tiger Woods, $1.7 billion. Cristiano Ronaldo, $1.2 billion. LeBron James, $1.2 billion. Lionel Messi, $1.2 billion. Roger Federer, $1.1 billion. And Floyd Mayweather, $1.2 billion. The next chart is titled Highest Paid Athletes and is a list of the athletes that have made the most money over the past 12 months. Number one, Lionel Messi, $130 million, age 34, plays soccer for Paris Saint-Germain. Number two, LeBron James, earned $121 million, He's 37 years of age. He plays basketball for the Los Angeles Lakers. Number three on the list is Cristiano Ronaldo. He earned $115 million in the past 12 months. He's 37 and plays soccer for Manchester United. Number four, Neymar earned $95 million in the past 12 months. He's 30 years old and plays soccer for Paris Saint-Germain. Number five on the list, Stephen Curry. He earned $93 million. He's age 34 and plays basketball for the Golden State Warriors. Number six, Kevin Durant, $92 million. He's 33, plays basketball for the Brooklyn Nets. Number seven, Roger Federer. He earned $91 million. He's age 40 and plays tennis. Number eight, Canelo Alvarez. Earned $90 million. He's 31 and is a boxer. Number nine, Tom Brady earned $84 million. He's 44 and plays football for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Number 10, Giannis Antetokounmpo, capital G-I-A-N-N-I-S, capital A-N-T-E-T-O-K-O-U-N-M-P-O, earned $81 million dollars. He's 27 years old and plays basketball for the Milwaukee Bucks. Number 11, Russell Westbrook 
earned $80 million. He's 33, plays basketball for the Los Angeles Lakers. Number 12, James Harden, earned $74 million. Age 32, plays basketball for the Philadelphia 76ers. Number 13, Matthew Stafford, earned $72 million. He's age 34 and plays football for the Los Angeles Rams. Aaron Rodgers earns $68 million. He's 38 and plays football for the Green Bay Packers. Tiger Woods earns $68 million. He's age 46 and plays golf. Josh Allen is at 16. He earns $67 million in the past year. He's age 26 and plays football for the Buffalo Bills. Lewis Hamilton earns $66 million. He's age 37 and is an auto racer. Number 18 on the list is Tyson Fury. He earned $62 million, is age 33, and is a boxer. Number 19 on the list is Naomi Osaka. She earned $89 million, is age 24, and plays tennis. And number 20 on the list is Damian Lillard. He earned $57 million, is age 31, and plays basketball for the Portland trailblazers that was the article a league of their own it was written by matt craig and chase peterson with and it appeared in forbes magazine's june july 2022 edition that's all the time we have for the african-american hour this week my name is byron buckner thanks for joining me